testing Dan- Danny audio test one two chat please let me know how how loud I am testing one two testing one two please let me know how I sound okay. testing one two and test with both of us together Georgie go ahead yes uh, yes testing one two. Everybody, how are you guys? I have my good extra special guest, Georgie Dinkov here. Georgie, how are you? Fine. Thanks for restarting these. <laughs> Always uh, a pleasure and fun to do, and you make them worthwhile, so thank you so much. Uh, guys, uh, if you were with us last time, you know that I had some battery problems with my computer, and so we're at like 79% battery, and so we're going to try to get through this show without my computer shutting off. And so I apologize for that. I think in Thailand, the AC current or something uh, must just not be strong enough to power the computer, even though it's plugged in. So I will keep you updated on that, but we're going to try to fly through a lot of these articles basically as, as quickly as possible. And if you want to follow along with us, you can go to hateit.me. And Georgie, why, what uh, article did you want to start with? We have vitamin D, the new antibiotic against skin and gut infections. I mean, I have at least 20 posts since the last talk, but I think the first page is all of them are pretty good. Um, so that vitamin D thing is pretty important. Basically, it shows that uh, vitamin D levels are crucial for the production of a, uh, like a protein that's really important for immune system and specifically for battling bacterial infections. That protein name is... Let me see. Catalicidin antimicrobial peptide. Is that calcilicidin? Um, Maybe I'm probably saying it wrong too. But yeah, that's the antibiotic in vitamin D, right? Yeah, exactly. Catalicidin antimicrobial oh. peptides. It's uh, abbreviated as CAMP, which is actually not a good abbreviation because there's another another enzyme which is uh, which basically is, is, is also important for metabolism. It's also abbreviated as CAMP, but the C is not capital. It's, it's lowercase. In any case, Long story short, they basically show that uh, levels of vitamin D are extremely important for for uh, protecting the mice from basically having their guts um, being overcrowded by bacteria, and potentially from preventing the, the 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 initiation of inflammatory bowel disease. And the rates of inflammatory bowel disease of diseases like Crohn disease and ulcerative colitis um, have been skyrocketing over the last two decades. And modern medicine continues to claim that, you know, it's really, it's unknown what, what the cause is. 
um, if, despite the fact that there's already a proposal that specifically Crohn's disease is due to a bacterial infection by a pathogen called Mycobacteria para, paratuberculosis. Um, and and uh, there, in some countries like the United Kingdom and Germany, I think they actually have a antibiotic protocol similar, similar to Lyme disease treatment. You basically go on this uh, mixture of antibiotic treatment. Sometimes they give them intravenously and you, you stay on it for a few months, which is pretty, pretty long. I mean, most antibiotic courses like two weeks, you know, a month tops. But this is, you know, this antibiotic course for Crohn's disease is, is much long, uh, lasts much longer. Anyways, long story short, they showed that maintaining normal vitamin D levels made the, my, the mice uh, extremely resistant to, to developing such uh, infections in their gut. Uh, more importantly, they, they also showed that applying vitamin D topically um, on the skin um, at a dosage of about 60 IU per kilogram, that will be for the, hu that'll be the human dose. This means about 6,000 units for somebody weighing about 200 pounds. I know, I know it's pretty, pretty heavy, but it's easier to calculate. Um, so dissolving the vitamin D in, in alcohol and propylene glycol, um, that solution was enough to actually completely sterilize the wound against the bacterium that is really resistant to antibiotics. So they were really surprised. I mean, they, they were able to treat the bacterial infection on, in the skin wound uh, just by using this, this vitamin D solution. And, you know, before the people start saying that, oh, it's the ethanol, the propylene glycol that had this effect, it, it wasn't. They actually tested these separately, and it was the vitamin D that, that had this effect. And, you know, they thought they think it's because of the increase of this uh, CM peptide. Um, so they basically say that vitamin D, maintaining vi normal vitamin D levels, uh, is probably a very good approach to protecting from endogenous systemic bacterial infections, specifically mm -hmm. the GI tract. Mm -hmm. And then if you have uh, some external wounds, applying vitamin D solution to them um, is probably a great way to sterilize them and kill the bacteria and heal the wound. And the plus, on the plus side for vitamin, for vitamin D treatment, um, they thought that the bacteria cannot develop resistance, unlike the bacterial resistance that can happen with regular antibiotics. So it's, another, it's another huge win for vitamin D, I think. And it just shows just how important vitamin D is, is for the immune system. Um, and now, the, uh, as you remember, we've already discussed in previous shows, the immune system factor is now recognizing cancer in, in um, uh, a number of different neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson, uh, also in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And even though they're saying they don't know why, um, I mean, the f it's already been confirmed that the immune system is involved in these diseases. In other words, it's being suppressed. And when it gets suppressed, these diseases happen. Conversely, when you restore the immune system function, it has a protective effect against diseases that are that that are not thought of currently as being of infectious origin. I mean, don't you think getting the vitamin D up is one of the most like straightforward ways to improve the health? You know, like just getting that test. And, and uh, I, I, there are lots of uh, points of view on whether you should or shouldn't supplement. But I feel like it's almost a no-brainer. And I, I think I think I suspect that some people that have problem supplementing vitamin D, they might just be reacting to the actual supplement and, and maybe they should try to put it on their skin, you know, but I know there's a subset yeah. of people that think it's, uh, that will increase tissue calcification. If you increase vitamin D, which I think is uh, a little backwards, like the vitamin D wouldn't increase the calcification. It's the parathyroid hormone. Parathyroid hormone. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so, um, uh, but go, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, basically, there were there was a study, a number of studies in the in the 1940s, which showed that 
uh, serum cholesterol levels and vitamin D levels were basically, um, they were almost perfectly, vitamin D was almost perfectly correlated with level of thyroid function and cholesterol was almost perfectly inversely correlated with thyroid function. So, So you can use these to test cholesterol and vitamin D is a great surrogate because the regular thyroid test could be so unreliable, right? I mean, you can have normal TSH, normal TSH, normal quote unquote, based on the the, the the fake ranges that are currently published. But let's say you have a low TSH for some reason, you can still be hypothyroid, right? I mean, you 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 can have high reverse T3, you can have low T3, and TSH could still be. If you take high dose L uh, T4, you will drive your TSH into the ground. That doesn't mean you resolve your thyroid issues, yeah, right? Yeah. And we brought a balance deal with this. Brother Bar said, like, we'll measure your temperature, right? Pulse and the morning temperature, uh, uh, armpit temperature. But even those things, like most people are like, oh, that's so inconvenient, or maybe they mismeasure it, right? Um, so the other, another really good test was the Achilles tendon reflex, right? Mm-hmm. How quickly the, the, the tendon relaxes after being stimulated. That's a great test, but most people cannot do it themselves, and um, they have to go to the doctor for that. So if you want to rely on, on blood biomarkers for, for measuring thyroid function, the combination of cholesterol and vitamin D are probably two of the best you can come up with. Uh, in my opinion, they actually surpass TSH because it, the only thing the TSH, the TSH test shows is how stimulated or how suppressed your pituitary is. It really doesn't have that much relevance for your peripheral thyroid function, which is in the tissues. Um, and how well they're, they're utilizing the thyroid hormone and, and basically how fast metabolism is, right? I mean, carbon dioxide is another great example. But anyways, long story short, vitamin D being a steroid and, and because it is a downstream metabolite of cholesterol, um, just like the, the test for the gonadal steroids, testosterone in women and progesterone in men, vitamin D is yet another very good biomarker for, uh, for thyroid function, for actually for, for speed of metabolism. Let's call it speed of metabolism. And unlike the blood test for, for the gonadal steroids, the vitamin test is, is much more reliable because for the gonadal ones, you have to worry about tissue levels versus blood levels. They don't always correlate very well. But it, it could, they could depend on a number of different factors, right? But for, with vitamin D, the test is pretty reliable. So if your vitamin D is low and or your cholesterol levels are high, chances are your, your metabolism is, is not where it should be. Yeah, it's it's surprising, to, like uh, how many people t- still bet the farm on the TSH test, and I think that's just like a medical culture type of thing. Because I, I've received like so many emails, so, uh, person saying like, "Well, you know, it can't be my thyroid because the TSH is so low." <laughs> and then, but, again, but, TSH is a pituitary hormone. Yeah. At, at the very best, it shows how well the pituitary is doing its job in producing it in response to low metabolism mm-hmm. and also how well the pituitary responds in terms of being suppressed. So you can actually use the TSH test for two things. One, you can basically use it to see if the pituitary will respond to a drop in metabolic function, which it should, right? And that's a good thing. If it doesn't, it's bad. I mean, actually, <laughs> there are situations where TSH being low is actually bad, right? If your metabolism drops, TSH should jump you know, to compensate for this. It's basically a compensate. It's, it's called well compensated hypothyroidism. The same thing happened with the gonadal function and LH and FSH pituitary enzymes. On the other hand, if you're taking L, uh, if you're taking T4, T3, and TSH doesn't drop, uh, that's actually a bad sign, right? I mean, basically it means the pituitary there's a tumor somewhere usually that's overproducing TSH. Uh, usually in the pituitary, but not always. Some, you can have some peripheral tumors that produce TSH as well. So that's really what the TSH test is good for. I mean, basically evaluating 
um, pituitary function, how well it responds, and the negative feedback mechanism. And if there is an issue with that, right? But it doesn't necessarily tell you much about the thyroid, right? It's a, it's a pituitary test. Uh, then, of course, you can get, I mean, you can start measuring the T4 and T3, right? And that can give you some, some idea because if your T4 is normal or high and, T, and T3 levels are not, then it kind of indicates the thyroid is, is doing its job, but the, your, liver, your liver isn't, right? But it still, it doesn't really give it a complete picture. It just gives you a, these piecemeal, you know, these piecemeal puzzles about the pituitary, the thyroid, the liver, right? But somebody wants, somebody just wants to know, like, look, should I take thyroid or not? Am I healthy or not? Like, that's that's really the ultimate question. And for for, for that to answer that question, um, usually the tests for cholesterol, carbon dioxide, and vitamin D are, are much better because they depend on systemic metabolism. And if metabolism is not where it should be, cholesterol starts to rise for two reasons. Number one, because it doesn't get converted properly downstream. Uh, but so there's some leftover, but it's not just the leftover. The body actually starts producing more cholesterol to compensate for the lower synthesis of the of the, of the protective steroids. Uh, and then vitamin D, the vitamin D levels are low, and actually low in about 40% of the population, actually probably even higher in some cases. That tells you just how just how low metabolism is in the in, in a significant minority, if not even the majority of the population. And if you combine cholesterol, vitamin D, and carbon dioxide, I think it kind of gives you it gives you the outputs of metabolism, right? The input cholesterol, and then the output will be vitamin D and carbon dioxide. And if there's a dysregulation somewhere in the metabolism, it's not working properly, you will see it in one or, one or more of these tests. Yeah, Broder Barnes has a quote, and it's like uh, a patient with a, a thermometer can figure out more than their doctor ever could, or, or something <laughs> about their metabolism. Uh, right. I don't know if I can find it real fast. Thermometer. Oh, I spelled it wrong. Okay, well, fuck it. Um, okay. Great stuff. And the one other thing I wanted to add in, I've, I've known real, some severely hypothyroid people with really low TSH levels. And then Ray had a quote, and he pointed to a paper where he, he said that like a, a very hypothyroid situation could have very high adrenaline, and that could actually... Uh, it Depending on what phase of stress the person was in, could suppress the TSH. And so... Just wanted to throw that out there too. Okay. Uh, thank you everybody for watching. Uh, I can't believe everything is working. I, I downloaded a new version of OBS. Uh, it's very early here in Bangkok. It's uh, 9 a.m. Uh, Georgie, how you doing? I'm all right. It's <laughs> 9.20 here. <laughs> 9.20 in the U.S. East, East Coast. I wanted to plug uh, Mr. Georgie's uh, supplement, boutique supplement company, Idea Labs. So if you're interested in that, idealabsdc.com. And then you can also go to idealabsdc.com slash lab for, uh, what do you call them, Georgie? Research chemicals? The lab chemicals, the research chemicals, yes. You can follow, follow Georgie on Twitter, uh, at hateit, and he posts quite a bit on there, and so you should go check that out. You can follow. Yeah, so the, the Twitter feed is basically a direct input. Uh, uh, the Twitter feed gets all of its uh, uh, articles directly from the blog. So you can follow one or the other. But I guess the Twitter feed is easier to follow because it gives you a snippet. But you're not a bot on there because we, we go back and forth. And so that's why you you have some. I'm not a bot, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I do, I do answer people's questions there. But I'm saying if you see it, when it says like new article and being posted. Yeah. I don't post it there manually. Actually, the Twitter checks my blog periodically and basically gets any new article and, and extracts it and, and posts it there. 
Awesome. Uh, you can, I do coaching and uh, email coaching as well. And I kind of renovated this page to be a little bit more clear. But if you go to dannyroddy.com slash resources, you can find out about that as well as I have like testing thyroid function, a uh, link to my book that I wrote in 2013, uh, stuff about hair loss and other types of things. So I tried to make this page as useful as possible. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Danny Roddy. And uh, oh, I have an Instagram too where I try to post lots of food things. <laughs> Okie doke. Uh, let's get to the next article. I like this one, the vitamin E anabolic catatoxic yeah. steroids. Yeah, this it's one perfect great. because it talks about soft tissue calcification, yeah, right? Perfect. And one of the authors of one of the studies is, is Hans Selye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think many people appreciate. <laughs> so a couple of things. In that in those studies, a couple of major things. First of all, they said that tissue calcification is actually both a surrogate for systemic aging and actually most likely a cause, right? And Ray spoke about this in several of his articles that the ultimate self that always results from overload of calcium. And it's really the, the intracellular calcification that, that causes a lot of these, like the stiffness and the, 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 the crystallization that really occurs with aging. Um, and as early as the 1940s and 1950s, people were agreeing with that and saying, yes. Um, so they actually, they, they had these animal models of accelerated aging um, and they caused it by causing massive soft tissue calcification and now people, the, like the, the haters of vitamin D will, will do a, a victory lap with vitamin D. But guess what? The doses that, that they administered correspond to 500,000 units daily for humans. That's, yeah, sure. If you take that much vitamin D on a daily basis, you will probably have an issue, right? Um, and actually, there are subsequent studies that show that even that can be prevented. And that's actually, you know, we're going to talk about this vitamin D doing that and preventing it. But they show that you can uh, you can actually prevent the calcification of even massive doses of vitamin D by adding by co-administering with vitamin A. So it's really even 500,000 units daily. It's not going to cause much damage if you know how to use it. But I'm hoping that nobody's using these massive doses of vitamin D. We're talking about two, three, four thousand, you know, units daily at most. And at that at those levels, I don't think there is a published even case study which has shown hypercalcemia in the blood, or soft tissue calcification. Anyways, long story short, these studies, of which Sally is one of the authors, demonstrated that uh, pretty pretty high doses of vitamin E um, or the, the basically the anabolic slash catatoxic steroids such as testosterone, nandrolone, um, you know, there's a, there is a steroid that Sally experiment, experimented with. He called it catatoxic steroid 1, mm-hmm. CS-1. So a number of these catatoxic steroids were cap- uh, were basically capable of preventing and in many cases reversing the soft tissue calcification, and as such, the process of aging. Because you know these studies made it pretty clear. Look, if we can reverse the symptom of progeria, which is early, you know, abnormally abnormally early aging, then you know we could we could possibly reverse or at least learn a lot more about the process of aging than we know right now. Um, and these were studies done in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and then they also found that uh, found out that egg yolk at the dose of about 100 grams daily, I don't know, that may be like four or five eggs. I haven't calculated it. But not the egg whites. Actually, the egg whites that were, were, was one of the factors that increased soft tissue calcification. And the, the studies also talk about parathyroid hormone, estrogen, and serotonin as being the three primary endogenous agents that cause soft tissue calcification independently 
of vitamin D intoxication. There, there you have it. And, and they, uh, in one of the studies, they actually sh- said that uh, testosterone and the other steroids that use nandrolone, DECA, also known as the vitamin locus, they actually worked by opposing the effects of estrogen and serotonin in tissues. Um, and for vitamin D, they don't have an explanation how it worked. Um, my suspicion is that, I mean, my explanation was that vitamin E is also an estrogen antagonist. That's probably uh, its its likely mechanism of action. But there are also um, studies showing that vitamin D lowers parathyroid hormone as well. So it could be a number of different explanations. Long story short, aging is is likely uh, associated or and or caused by soft tissue systemic soft tissue calcification, driven by high estrogen, high parathyroid hormone, high estrogen. All of these are associated with hypothyroidism and also causes of it. It's a they form a positive feedback cycle and supplementing with uh, protective steroids, vitamin E, or if you don't like any of these supplements, simply eating four to five egg yolks daily was capable of fully stopping this process and in many cases reversing. Well, I always love that quote by Ray. And he, he says like calcification begins in the mitochondria and he had some like path path to that. And it was, I think it was like swelling. So cells taking up water, then, um, or like the inflammatory process and swelling basically being, being the same thing. And then the accumulation of intracellular calcium uh, and that leading to the, the fibrotic calcified state. And, but Yeah, so ATP has an affinity for magnesium and mm-hmm. ADP has a, an affinity for calcium. So yeah. if, you, if metabolism is not working very well, the ADP to ATP ratio will rise. And as such, inside the cell, the cell will start drawing calcium in, right? And, and ex, ex, excluding excluding magnesium, so you will end up with with a cell that has a lot of a lot of uh, calcium bound to ADP and just staying there, right? And the only thing that will get out of there is if you restore the, the synthesis of ATP because that's what draws magnesium inside of the cell, and it keeps it there too. I mean that's so you cannot retain magnesium unless your ATP levels are at the at the appropriate level. I think that's why Ray always keeps saying like. Yeah, magnesium, people keep asking about magnesium supplementation. He says, yes, you can supplement, but in order for you to retain it, it depends on thyroid function, it depends on metabolism, it depends on ATP. Yeah, here's a paper from Fujita in 1991, and he says, aging as a background of disease, diseases is also characterized by an increase in intracellular calcium. Diseases typically associated with aging include hypertension, uh, arteriosclerosis, diabetes, and dementia. And he says, all cell death is characterized by an increase of intracellular calcium. There you go. Boom. Okay. Uh, anything else? Oh, I, the one other thing I wanted to talk about. You, you, Chris Masterjohn wrote an article. It's called Vitamin D Toxi- Toxicity Redefined Vitamin K and the Molecular Mechanism. And I hope mm-hmm. I'm not bastardizing this, but he was talking about how he thought like toxicity of uh, like vitamin D was when a person got too much vitamin A and, and like a deficiency of... So they had like this delicate relationship and if you did a huge dose, like you mentioned, that 500, was it 500,000 units? Unit daily. Yeah, you just like disturb the balance of everything. And then, of course, thyroid and vitamin A have an important relationship as well. And vitamin K, right? So vitamin D's role is, it, so it lowers the levels of thyroid hormone, but vitamin D is actually responsible for the absorption of calcium from the intestine, mm-hmm. from the diet, right? In the intestine. So all of this absorbed calcium it can go only in two places, or actually three. It can get excreted through the kidneys. Um, it can get deposited in soft tissues, or it can go into the bone. 
And in order for it to go in, inside the bones, you need a, um, a protein called osteocalcin, uh, for which the cofactor is vitamin K. So mm-hmm. in order for you to produce sufficient amounts of osteocalcin, which takes that calcium and prevents it from being dumped into the soft tissues. And actually, one of the studies in that thread, if you look at it, it's, it, 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 was, uh, it talked about it. It's, it was a case report, a human study of reversing uh, uh, um, uh, kidney calcification uh, by giving that person 10 milligrams of vitamin K daily. So it's vitamin K that apparently that normally can take this extra calcium because of the vit- high vitamin D levels and, and uh, basically dump it into the bones, but it can also uh, stimulate the release of calcium from soft tissues and also put it into the bone. So yeah, so whenever I take vitamin D, I always take some vitamin K with it. Uh, in my experience, I've never had a situation of, uh, of like the symptoms of hypercalcemia, like your face twitching or muscle twitching or cramps um, whenever I take vitamin D with, with vitamin K. But if you're taking the vitamin D even by itself, in doses of 5,000 units or less daily, like let's say 1,000 to 5,000, which is what Ray has been recommending as well, and the vitamin D council, I think at this point, recommends 5,000 units daily too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's a single published case that is showing that demonstrating hyper- hypercalcemia in the blood or increased soft tissue calcification. We all, you have to really abuse the vitamin D on a daily basis in order to get to that level. Sweet. Uh, t- and one other thing, I know I'm quoting Ray a lot here, but somebody did write him about using a lot of vitamin D and the level not going up, and he recommended eating more liver. And I, and I, I guess because there are so many different cofactors and the steroid, the metabolism of vitamin D from the sunlight to cholesterol is like extremely complicated. And so I guess the liver had many cofactors for that process to happen. And then I know somebody who ate raw liver like every day (laughs) and they thought they got a vitamin A poisoning and they, they got lab tests and their vitamin D, if I remember right, was like 126, but they weren't supplementing with vitamin D. And so I was like, yeah, they were just eating liver. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so uh, so also uh, on the levels not rising, because um, uh, I know he told some people that too, and I, I was able to confirm it in a few studies. They showed that in uh, obese or over severely overweight people, the higher doses are needed because the volume of distribution of vitamin D increases in a heavier person. Mm-hmm. You have more tissue, right? Mm-hmm. So the re- like the the regular the regular recommendations of like two to three thousand units daily being sufficient, that's not true for a person, especially a person carrying extra fat. Because the fat actually has has like a uh, um, the uptake of vitamin D in in fat tissue is inhibited for some reason they don't know yet uh, yet why so so basically if you're if you're carrying extra weight and I think the current so you may want to do like double the recommended dosage for restoring vitamin D levels if you go to the doctor and you have a vitamin D deficiency most often they'll tell you go to the store and buy like the 1,000 units per pill uh, product and take like one a day right and they'll be like very cautious like don't now, don't take more because it's a problem, right? Well, if you're overweight, especially carrying extra fat, um, I would actually take two to 3,000 units. That also happens to be the dosage way recommended. And even if that's not enough, I would actually try to take take the two to 3,000 units daily, orally, and then supplement with a little bit topically, especially over areas with extra fatty tissue, like especially the abdomen, chest, and, and back, because that's usually where the fat accumulates, or like thighs and hips, uh, for women, um, and that that seems to help because I had a, f- a few uh, customers who did the same thing. They were basically using um, our vitamin D product both orally and topically, and it worked. And one of, one of these people is uh, 
I don't want to use the word morbidly obese, but they they have a BMI of 36. Um, and that worked. But when they were using only topically or only orally, they weren't able to raise their levels, even though they were taking five to 8,000 units a day. Wow. Okay, I won't stop after every article we do. But guys, click the like button. That really helps us out. And subscribe if you haven't subscribed already. Uh, just a public service announcement. Okay, so... I uh, I found out about this article that you had posted because I made a video about my side passion of deterring people away from the carnivore and keto diets, <laughs> and uh, and and you had linked this article: the eating a pound of sugar daily has strikingly positive effects on male fertility. And yeah. um, while this isn't explicitly about libido, when I was doing zero carb. Well, I was I was like always focused on hair and things, but libido is just as as much of a problem for me. And so, I re- I pr- appreciate Ray's point of view and all the bioenergetic point of view in general because I feel like th- it's helped me stabilize that problem. And if it ever is lower, I can I can have a assortment of things to to do about it or to try. And I really there have been many times where eating carbohydrate seems to be uh, very useful. So I know this is more in. Uh, regards to fertility, but I just thought I had mentioned that. So do you, do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, they actually, uh, I mean, they, it's a pretty pretty straightforward study. They And it, you know, they fed these people like a regular diet, and then one group got an additional pound of sugar daily, and truly sugar, because it consisted of added sugar, um, uh, which came from about three and a half liters of fizzy drinks or 550 grams, which is one pound, of confectionery. So I'm guessing these people ate basically chocolate, candy, and or drank like three and a half liters of Coke, mm-hmm. which I think Ray mentioned once that when, when he had trouble finding ripe fruit in Mexico, he end, he ended up drinking like, I'm forgetting how many Cokes sweetened well, with sugar daily, but it was like a high number. Well I, well, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but like I, I might have. But in Mexico, one of the funniest things over living there for about three years was the little kids like walking home with litro Coke bottles. Oh, yeah, and that, yeah. that was something I saw so often and it would never be uh, like crush or it never be like Mountain Dew. It would always specifically be Mexican Coke. And then the, uh, of course the adults did the same thing. And uh, I remember asking like the t- Tiendo woman, like, do you think Coke has is medicinal? And she looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I, I swear to God, that was, uh, I mean, that's another topic of the coca leaves and stuff. But I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and well, it, it, I don't know if you have not, not been, but no, but Coke and Pepsi are on the United Nations list of, what is it? The list of most important medicines or something. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Because it, yeah, because it's, it's considered approved oral rehydration therapy. So I know they have these special products. I'm blanking on the name right now, but they sell in the CVS and Walgreens everywhere in the United States. So you can get like these electrolyte drinks, usually for babies, um, uh, Pedialyte. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but when you don't have Pedialyte, what do you do? And because the United Nations figured out that Coke and Pepsi have such high market penetration, you're likely to find them even like jungle stores in the middle of of Thailand. (laughs) They said that you know if you if you're dehydrated, uh, drinking a bottle of Coke or Pepsi is actually a pretty good way to 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 restore cellular hydration. And, yeah, um, and, and just to point out, it's like Coke and like and Pepsi are useful 
partly because how bad the food supply is. <laughs> like those yeah, those things exactly. are are okay because if you're in an airport and you're flying and you haven't eaten for a while, like yeah, Coke might be the best thing available to consume. And and that's and, like and it, one of the easiest to digest and the safest, right? I mean, it's like you're not getting much other than caffeine, sugar, and and you know a little bit of phosphoric acid, but it's really caffeine and the sugar, which is what your body needs. Exactly, but I think that's very hard for people to believe. But it's just again, it's not that not that Coke or whatever is necessarily like the most nutritious food in the world. It's that the food supply is so horrendous. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, back to the study. One third of the of the participants in the study had poor sperm motility at the beginning of the of the trial. So by the end, the quote is like the others were surprised to learn that the motility of sperm of all participants during the trial had become normal. And the study shows that sperm motility can be changed rapidly in a short period, and it seems to be closely coupled to diet. And you know, of course, they're not trying not to emphasize the fact that not just diet. But the carbohydrate intake, because it's it's the increase, it's that that additional pound of sugar that really made the difference. Um, so, if anybody's struggling with infertility, actually, invariably, some of the people that email me uh, and say, "Oh, we're struggling to to get pregnant, to have a baby," and when I ask about their diet, at least one of them is is more often than not, if not always, is on is on some kind of either low calorie, low carb diet, and or some kind of an exhaustive exercise regimen. Um, and usually the people who actually, you know, manage to get pregnant, like they're saying, like, well, we're surprised, like we actually gained weight and we looked a lot unhealthier than we were before, but we were fertile. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm guessing the, you know, the, 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 the criteria for healthiness has been really skewed over the last couple of decades. I mean, I get it. It looks better um, when you're, when you're a specific V shape as a man or like, or the, the hourglass shape as a woman. But this should be like in, in order for this to be healthy, this should be actually how you naturally look without going to the gym six days a week. Mm-hmm. If going to the gym six days a week is what is required in order for you to look that way, probably you're not healthy underneath. And as soon as you stop that regimen, things basically, you know, uh, you start piling on the weight. But ironically, biochemically, you're a healthier person because the body actually turns off the reproductive function first if things are not going well, Right. The same thing as the brain. When you're under stress, the creative function, the higher cognitive function, those are the first things that they get they get uh, tossed to the side, and, and then you go into back to your lizard brain to use those to use to use that term. So you know if that is the, if that's what happens when you're under stress, when things are not going well, then conversely, if fertility is restored, chances are this this means this suggests that you are in a better metabolic slash systemic health because otherwise the body wouldn't allow you to procreate because it's not considered, you know, a, a, a crucial thing for immediate survival. So if, if, if that's what restored male fertility, I suspect actually, I think there was an older study. They didn't use a pound of sugar with women. I mean, the study was with women. They used uh, honey. So they said basically uh, drinking a shot of honey, which has about 28 to 30 grams and most of it is sugar. So drinking three to five shots of honey, adding them to the diet, to the daily diet, restored fertility in women in advanced reproductive age, which is a code speak in medical circles for women in the age between 35 and 45. And, you know, after, above 40, they sometimes they try to discourage women to even try having children naturally. They say, well, why don't you do like a surrogate mother or like adopt because it's really not good for you. It's like, it's dangerous, right? Anyways, even in those women uh, who couldn't get pregnant naturally, adding, 
eating that, that honey restored fertility as well. So now you have two studies, one in women, one in males showing that, you know, and these people with the 450 gram sugar extra, with a one pound sugar extra, many of them were actually overweight and obese. I forget the percentage, but I think it mimicked the general population percentage, which is 40 to 45%. So clearly you can be uh, overweight and at least reproductively healthy. But if you eat, if you eat your sugar. I'd like to point out that I, I think I consume pre, on average about a cup of sugar a day. So I think I'm like this experiment for a long time. Uh, okay. So any, anything else on this one? I mean, it's a, just a simple study. That's, that's pretty much all there is to it. Um, unless you can think of something else, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, that's the only thing they tested sperm motility and sperm count. So that's, that, that was the result. Uh, did you want to talk about in most cases, genes have less than 5% contribution to disease risk? Yeah, that's, that's, like that <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, uh, <laughs> well, everybody knows about the Weisman doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it basically says that, uh, you know, like the, you cannot pass traits that they acquire from the environment. You cannot pass them on to the next generation. And to this day, that's actually a pretty, it's, it's a dogma. It's a pretty established thing. You know, you go to, go to medical school, you learn about the Weisman doctrine. Um, even despite the fact that over the last two or three years, maybe five, and I, I, we've discussed this on previous podcasts, there were studies that demonstrated that's not true, right? You can actually, like, so the, the, the children of obese parents are more likely to be obese. Um, even, even if their grandparents weren't, right, the excuse always is, well, you, you know, I mean, the gene doesn't get, doesn't, the, if there is obesity gene, it may not get expressed in some generations, but it can get expressed in others, right? Mm-hmm. Yet, no obesity gene has been found. Um, there is also, there are also the studies that show that, uh, that mice that were exposed to like a cat urine or a predatory urine, uh, urine in their cages, mm-hmm. like basically th- their, their offspring was also afraid of the cat urine without ever encountering a cat, right? So yeah. these things are epigenetically can be passed. Uh, medicine continues to to basically uh, d- uh, deny the fact that um, that, that uh, um, significant non-genomic inheritance exists, um, and they're saying the epigenetics is still a very nascent science. We don't know much about it, and let's let's stick to genes because that's what we know until we know more about it, epigenetics. But this study actually looked at uh, what what is the contribution of genes for most of the diseases that really matter to us. And they found out that for most people, the genes explain less than 5% of developing a particular disease. And for some, basically for some cases, for some of the really bad uh, conditions like the the cancers, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, have a genetic contribution of 5% to to 10% at best. And they also um, uh, said that one uh, uh, one of the key methods currently used by the genetics community, the gene wide association studies, um, they kind of pour cold water on it and say these uh, these these things are duds for disease prediction. Um, so if less than five percent of your of your disease risk is due to genes, then the rest, like the vast majority for most people, let's just say all of it, is due to environment. I mean, there's 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 no other way to look at this. Um, and if you read the if you read the interview with the with the authors of the study, they were pretty clear about it. They said, look, it's time that we take uh, off our rosy glasses. Um, you know, about the idea of the genetics and gene editing will somehow resolve all of these issues simply because things that you and I have discussed like for the last four or five years 
80 years of genomics research produced not a single gene associated, I mean, proven to be causative for a specific one of these diseases, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancers, right? And then the only, and not, not a single drug has come out that is even remotely useful. And now they're jumping onto CRISPR and added, editing genes, right? But so far, none of this has really materialized into anything useful for, for the general population. And these authors who are themselves geneticists, they're saying, enough is enough. Let's give the other, um, you know, the other side of the room, the other half of the room, which screams, metabolics, metabolics. Let's give them a chance. I mean, we haven't produced anything. Maybe it's time to look at the environment and um, and worry about it more. Um, this reminds me actually of an article I read back in the, two, I think it was 2008. I, it may still be online. I'll send it to you. It was about Adderall and how Adderall has become the main tool for disciplining, disciplining young, unruly children in foster homes and in, in various institutions in the United States where basically problematic, problematic kids are being sent. And I remember like this, the, the journalist was interviewing the, the head doctor at one of the facilities, and she was basically saying, so, so what is your method? And, and his response was, well, in this country, we have long ago given up on modifying the environment, so the only thing that remains is modifying the individual. And the only thing I can do when I get thrown 100 kids at me is feed them all this powerful drug, and basically that's how we control unruly children. But the... The thing that really stuck with me and basically the remember to this day is that we have given up on the idea of modifying the environment because it costs too much, it's too hard, we're not interested, right? So that, I mean, and this was a doctor who was like a Harvard graduate. So so this must be, um, I mean, I know it's only one doctor, but he, I think he was speaking out of experience that this must be the general attitude of the medical community as well, right? We, we, we cannot worry about the environment because it's too complex or too inconvenient to admit that we've created an environment that kills us, so, so we're going to only worry about you. But again, if you're only worrying about the individual and how the individual reacts to his or her environment, that's patchwork, right? I mean, you can invent a thousand different drugs, and at the end of the day, it still would come down to modifying the environment because, um, I forget, it was like, a, I think it was Linus Pauling who said that being well adapted to a profoundly sick, sick society, sick world, is no measure of health. That's really so weird. It's we, it was Maslow, but I'm actually like Maslow, looking okay. up a Maslow coat as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, synchronicity again strikes again. Uh, well, let me just let me just go ahead and read it. So the reason why I was looking it up is there's discussion of like what is and isn't healthy in the chat, and so uh, this was always something that was fascinating to me uh, for many reasons. But like I I I know I've told this story a hundred thousand times, but like I knew people in the ballet company that had the most chiseled physiques I've literally ever seen. They were like uh, uh, statues of, of such amazing physiques. And, but I, when I would get to know some of these people, it was clear that there were like serious, serious issues with them. Yeah. And, and so again, living in San Francisco is really like a time that shaped my point of view of like what was healthy and what wasn't. And also, I don't think it can be undercounted that like the the environment is so bad that that uh, I, it it just seems like maintaining a level of health uh, in this environment is is fairly difficult at all, you know. And yeah. so, for example, I'm in a condo right now, and there's probably a hundred thousand Wi-Fi routers here, like five G Wi-Fi routers, you know. And so wow. I'm probably being harmed just sitting here. 
So the... I had brought up a quote, though, and it's from Maslow, and he says, I am deliberately rejecting our present easy distinction between sickness and health, at least as far as surface symptoms are concerned. Does sickness mean having symptoms? I maintain now that sickness might consist of not having symptoms when you should. Does health mean being symptom-free? I deny it. And he goes, which of the Nazis at Auschwitz or Dachau were healthy, those with a stricken conscience or those with a nice, clear, happy conscience? Was it possible for a profoundly human person not to feel conflict, suffering, depression, rage? He goes on there, and it's and it's really good. I encourage anybody to look it up. Um, I forget what book it, it's in, but again, like uh, I, it's I, something I admire about Ray Pete is like I think he exudes kind of health uh, in his interactions, and so that might not be the most obvious thing to to a person, but I think being like a, a non authoritarian asshole like not being that is a sign of health and i know few there are like that's very common in the health world like people want to control other people people want to tell people what to do uh if you don't do it exactly as they say you know there's there's some malfunction with you and so i think i see ill health in the health world all the time and so i think judging like aesthetics uh especially when you haven't you don't you don't hang out with that person like if I'm sure if you hung out with some of the health guru people on the internet, like you might notice dysfunction when they're waiting in line at the grocery store and they get upset over something really trivial or, or something like that. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. I've had experience with these people too. I mean, uh, when I was still going to the gym on a daily basis back in 2008, before I had my uh, run in with health issues, um, the two personal trainers that were there, um, I know them because one of them is now a client. <laughs> Um, both turned out, one of them turned out to have um, hepatic steatosis. And that person was the spitting image of at least externally of health. I mean, he had the, he, he had a, like a, like a body fat of under 6%, which is like what competitive bodybuilders have. Um, and he was, you know, pretty, pretty bulky, muscular person, right? Um, no, but of course it turned out that this is due to heavy use of steroids, at least in his case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another person who was running the, uh, the soul cycle class. I mean, if you look at her, all the women were like salivating all over her body because she was the, you know, just like just this uh, skinny fit person who uh, I, when I first saw her, I, I mean, uh, my evaluation, like when I first see like uh, females in terms of health is like the subconscious, like, are you attractive? Right. I mean, I know it could be very subjective, but I wasn't. And she had a very androgynous kind of look. There was no difference between waist and hips but she was really like like wired and muscular, and and she had like the perfect biomarkers. Her doctor told her, "Oh, your cholesterol is really low, excellent, right?" And then basically, like within two years, she developed breast cancer. And one thing that I know, another thing that I noticed is that like before, she had pictures of like before and after before she started doing Soul Cycle and after. And before the Soul Cycle, she actually had very well developed breasts. But after embarking on this program, and she paid. $10,000 to one of the gurus who happens to be from San Francisco, by the way, to get trained as a trainer in SoulCycle. Um, and basically, like a little, uh, um, shortly after she got diagnosed with breast cancer, he th- got diagnosed with liver cancer. I don't know if it's steroid use or something else, but invariably, like a lot of these people that at least I run into that that looked like a spitting image of health and everybody was admiring them and, you know, and, and, and being envious of their physique, Turn out to have some some very, really serious systemic underlying health issues. And again, I mean, it goes back to the to the, the thing that we keep bringing up every single time. It's like 
if you have to, if you have to, in order for you to look healthy, or at least what we've defined as healthy, if that means spending six or seven days out of the week in the gym and running your butt off or like lifting weights like a madman and watching every calorie you eat, then it means this this is not healthy. It's you're putting in way too much effort and, and attention into something that to a healthy person should come more or less naturally, right? I mean, it's perfectly normal to avoid eating cake <laughs> with every meal. I mean, that's that's something that, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's common sense. We don't even need to mention it. But you have to count every calorie. And if even a grain of rice would like make a difference in your book, then then I would argue that things are, are not going in the right direction. Even if you look like they're going in the right direction. Sooner or later, something comes up that, that demonstrates that this attitude of controlling life fully, right? To the point of everything being an exact science, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, life is smarter than us in so many respect, respects. And this is one of them. Like if you're trying to develop perfection in an imperfect world, then you pay the price. Well said. Uh, guys, if you could please like this episode, that would be really support Georgie and I. So thank you for doing that and subscribe if you haven't already. I am sitting at 48% battery. <laughs> so this is really terrible oh, and wow. I, and I need to figure this out somehow, but I, I don't, I, I think it's just the Thai, uh, power outage. I, if people are joining us now, my battery is like going down slowly as we have this conversation. My screen is like practically black. I can barely see the screen. So I had to turn down the brightness a lot to hopefully save battery. Uh, idealabsdc.com, Georgie's Boutique Supplement Company. Go check it out. And if you checked out the last episode, he, he's actually doing studies on his uh, supplement. So Cordonon, a progesterone to DHT, DHEA supplement uh, for, for cancer and things. Very interesting. And we'll keep you guys updated on any news that uh, comes out of that. You can and, follow- and a study with DHT and prostate cancer, which oh, yeah. I think... Every endocrinologist in this world should be interested about because so far the results are staggering. I don't want to jinx it. Let's see what comes out of it. But uh, if I can get that published, if I can convince our journal to commit suicide and publish this, (laughs) I think we're going to have a very interesting 2020. (laughs) You can follow Georgie on Twitter at at HateIt. Uh, I do coaching and you can go to dannyrowdy.com slash resources. And in addition to coaching, you can actually see... Uh, various like testing thyroid function questions I get asked like all the time, like useful lab tests I think are useful. You can follow me on uh, Twitter. Oh, this was, I, I brought up something about your, when we were talking about genes uh, mm-hmm. and I might as well mention it, but this was a uh, uh, TD Lysenko quote. And he yeah. said, heredity, heredity, heredity is the effect of the concentration of the action of external conditions assimilated by the org- organism in a series of preceding generations. And then a, maybe a simpler version of that quote is by somebody named Luther Burbank. And they said, Heredit, heredity is the sum of all past environments. And the reason I mean, why... Isn't that obvious? That's what Lamarck said, right? Um, yeah. I mean, this is like, it's been going on for, for ages and, and nobody talks about this in medical schools. But but I think, I think when people... I suspect that when people hear us say that genes don't have a, a big uh, impact on the outcome, that we're denying hereditary, uh, like a hereditary. Uh, That's precisely why I, I, pre- I preempted this by saying that just because something is hereditary, it doesn't mean it's genetic. Yeah, yeah, That's really yeah. the big, the thing that, that throws most people off because I've talked to psychiatrists and they say, Oh, quite obvious. 70% of depression is genetic. I mean, it runs in the families. I'm like, 
<laughs> Have you ever considered that it could be heritable without Jesus? No, impossible. <laughs> Why not? Weisman doctrine. You look it up. Like, what, what do you mean Weisman doctrine? We know at this point it's it's you can inherit things that in, through a non non genetic pathway. Well, um, again, the response from smart people is it's just one study. Let's give it a time, some time, and see what comes out of it. While others saying, I, I don't want to discuss this. I work in genetics. <laughs> it's either this or I'm unemployed or, or homeless or, or worse. So it's we've gotten unfortunately to the point where you. I suspect that quite a few of the geneticists and other people working in the field are actually uh, are already reaching the point of they're saying like, look, something is not right with our field, but I can't switch jobs now, right? I've dedicated 20, 30, 40 years of my life to genes. What am I? What am I going to do with myself if tomorrow it turns out that genes are useless? When it comes to disease, I mean, not useless, but there may be 10 or 15 diseases at this point that are really known to have a genetic component. And there's, this is not nearly enough diseases to justify the half a million or so geneticists around the world, maybe even more. So they're not, they're not dumb. Like it, it, even as, as authoritative as they are, I mean, I, I, I know people who work in genetics at NIH and they're always worried about their jobs. They're saying, like uh, a few of them got fired recently from from pharmaceutical companies working on drugs that silence or like or like uh, enable certain genes or activate them, um, and and they're worried. They're saying like the market is really seems to be drying up, um, even though it's you know it seems everything's going well for the genetics field, or computational genetics is now a really huge thing. There's a lot of uh, federal government investment in it. In terms of if if you're a geneticist and you want and you want to work in medicine then most of the people that I know are very afraid right now. I mean, they're trying to switch to computational genetics or bioinformatics or doing something with computers because the money is there. If you're a geneticist and you want, you want to work for a company that will produce drugs that are focused on genes, you, you, I mean, tough luck. And like many of these people are, are unemployed and the ones that are very afraid for their jobs. And just to piggyback on that, Cold War and Biology by Carl C. Lindegren is like a must read for anybody interested in the the prevailing gene theory over the vitalis or the animus or whatever you want to call them. Uh, okay, the, that, the Lamarckians. I Lamarckians. like the Lamarckians. Yeah. Okay, let's get let's do the redox, uh, the NAD to NADH, then get to uh, super chats, and I ha- so I have forty four percent battery, and I think I think we'll have enough time for that. Okay. okay. So, but you got the file I sent you? <laughs> uh, I have it in my email. Should I open it up? I mean, it's just the post you did. So, okay. So I wanted to yeah. talk about this because I made, I, I, uh, last week I made a video about carnivore, low carb or whatever. And the, I think the proponents of the, lo- the low carb diet, they hear cortisol and they kind of have a knee jerk reaction and they say they will construct some argument or, or whatever to say, well, uh, cortisol doesn't r- increase on a, a ketogenic or low carb diet. So I, that is that point has been just uh, debated to to death. So if I if I set that aside, I think the bigger point is that when you go when you fast when you uh, go on a low carb diet, or if you have just an excess of free fatty acids and your um, glucose oxidation is, is inhibited, so you're just stressed in general. No matter what type of diet you're eating, I think the most coherent way to with for the big picture is to talk about the NAD to NADH ratio. And so yeah. I think that's, uh, and you have a post, the one metabolic cause to rule them all. And I think that was really apt. And so I wanted to go through this because 
because again, it's not like it's like oh, Ray Pete says that eating low carb will stress you out, but I think it's much uh, more interesting and elaborate, and and so I think. And you can also weed through the, the fine details when you talk about the NAD to NADH ratio. So you want me to go over the cycle? <laughs> okay, well, I'll, the oxidation, loss of electrons, the reduction, gain of electrons. Uh, but yeah, if just your uh, uh, elevator pitch for NAD to NADH, glycolysis, pyruvate dehydrogenase, or the link reaction to right. uh, Krebs, the electron transport chain, uh, cytochrome C oxidase, cardiolipin, all that thing forming uh, oxidative metabolism and that reinforcing our structure, basically race hypothesis, but in a more granular way. Yeah. So basically if you, when you're eating carbohydrates, they'll have to go through the glycolysis step first, right? I think it's got like eight substeps or something like that. But the output of, of the glycolysis is this molecule called pyruvate, right? Glucose gets metabolized into pyruvate. Um, and a buildup of NADH, which is the reduced form of NAD. And that's really how we, how we produce energy from food. We carry electrons, uh, not carry, but like, so the way we, we think of us as a, as a light bulb in between the two poles of a battery, and then one pole is supplying electricity, which is food, right, in the form of electrons. In the, in the case of biology, it's ions, the hydrogen ions. And these hydrogen ions get passed along a number of different steps and eventually they, they meet with oxygen and the output product is water. And in some of the other steps, another output product is carbon dioxide. Now, if there, there are a number of different, across all of these steps, there can be an interference with the passage of this hydrogen ion from one step to the next. So, but some of these steps are more crucial than others. It's rare to have inhibition in the steps of, the, of glycolysis. And usually if something like this happens, these are really severe diseases, and most of the children that are born with some kind of a genetic inborn error in one of the substances of glycolysis, they don't tend to live very long. They, they tend to die very early, um, probably even before birth. They, they may even be stillborn. So let's say glu uh, glucose makes it through glycolysis, and the output uh, is uh, pyruvate and NADH. So then, and this happens in the cytosol of the cell, right? So the next step is to get into the mitochondria, which is where oxidative phosphorylation goes. So glycolysis proceeds without the need of oxygen. It, it, can, it can be done anaerobically. So in order for you to use, to consume oxygen, you need mitochondrial metabolism, which is where the next two large subsections of metabolism, which is Krebs cycle and electron transport chain, that's where they are, they, they are located, inside the mitochondria. So in order for the pyruvate, to enter the mitochondria and, and in order for it to start feeding towards the end goal, which is oxygen, pyruvate needs to be converted to something called acetyl coenzyme A, right? And in order for that to happen, there is, a, there is an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase, which takes as an input, takes pyruvate and it has a cofactor, the two factors, the two cofactors are magnesium, thiamine, which is vitamin B1, and also NAD, right? So what happens if you have a buildup of pyruvate and buildup of NADH and the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase, PDH, is not working? Well, in order for the body to stay alive, it needs the oxidized version of NADH known as NAD. So how can you get it back, right? This NAD was used during the glycolysis to generate NADH, to accept these electrons from food and, and carry them towards the next step. So now you have pyruvate as an intermediate product and NADH. If PDH is not working, pyruvate dehydrogenase, 
then the buildup of these two molecules is the only thing that the body has. Remember, oxygen is not available. You cannot use oxygen to oxidize NADH while it's still in the cytosol. So what would be the emergency oxidant in this case? Assuming you're not taking anything, any supplements, but we'll get to the supplements and how you can help this issue later, right? So in the absence of any external help, the only thing available to the body to use is pyruvate itself can be an oxidizing agent. Now, not many people know, but pyruvate is actually the keto acid of the amino acid beta-alanine. And the reason I'm mentioning this is keto acid is to bring up the point that ketones, keto acids and ketones can serve an oxidizing function, which is may explain why uh, ingesting externally ketones may help with certain metabolic problems, but we'll get to that point later. So pyruvate could be an oxidizing agent. So the enzyme lactate dehydrogenase, which is inside the cell, if there is a buildup of pyruvate and if there is a buildup of NADH, the, the enzyme LDH, lactate dehydrogenase, will take the pyruvate, will take the NADH and use the pyruvate and say oxidize NADH back into NAD. But in the process, the pyruvate gets converted to lactate, right? So then what happens with this lactate? The cell really does not like lactate. It does everything possible to get rid of it and immediately pumps it out into, into um, inter, intercellular space. So two things. When the lactate starts building up, first of all, you're already in a, in a hypoxic environment because when lactic builds up, when lactic acid builds up, your tissues cannot properly extract oxygen from the blood and get oxygenized. Um, so this lactic acid, when it builds up, the only thing it can do is it can get shuttled to the liver and then get converted back to glucose inside the liver through a process called the core cycle, right? But here's the thing. If the PDH enzyme is not working, okay, the liver converted the lactic acid back to glucose, so you're, you're kind of okay, right? If the liver is working well, if it's not, then you're kind of screwed. Lactic acid, acidosis is actually has a 20 to 30% mortality rate. And now they're finding out that many of the many of the patients with diabetic ketoacidosis, which coincides with lactic acidosis, and they it has such a high mortality rate, even in hospitals, they're actually dying because of their high lactic acid, not because of their high keto, keto acids that are resulting from the metabolism of all of this fat. It's really the lactic acid that kills them. Um, so, okay, so the liver converted the, this extra lactic acid back to glucose, right? But you're back at step one. So this glucose has to go through glycolysis, right? Generate NADH again and pyruvate, and you're back at the step, the rate-limiting step of metabolism of glucose is pyruvate, pyruvate dehydrogenase. So the, the things that determine the function, the primary factors that determine the function of this enzyme is the availability of vitamin B1, the availability of magnesium, and actually, ironically, the, the ratio of NAD to the NADH but it's the mitochondrial ratio of NAD to the NADH. And in order for this ratio to be high inside of the mitochondria, this means that the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain have to be working well in order for this intermitochondrial NADH to be reoxidized back into NAD because inside the mitochondria, the cell doesn't have the emergency option of using pyruvate or another like a, a emergency oxidant unless, again, I'm, I'm giving the disclaimer, unless you're supplementing with something. Um, like quinones, right? Things that are like emer emergency oxidizing agents. So if the pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme is working well, then basically it takes that pyruvate, right? And it converts it into acetyl-CoA, right? 
And then you have the grip cycle, which I think has like a, like a, a six or 10 different sub-steps. There, there are several sub-steps, sub-steps, and then they create additional intermediaries. So the, the acetyl-CoA can basically can, can get converted into alpha-ketoglutarate, succinic acid, fumaric acid, and ultimately towards the, there's no end because it's a cycle, right? But the last one of the, the like the, there's a step in the Krebs cycle um, from which the, the succinic acid can actually jump into the electron transport chain. And the first step is known as succinic dehydrogenase. That is the enzyme that is the first one of the electron transport chain. And along all of these steps, you're basically oxidizing NADH, accepting that electron, reoxidizing the NADH back into NAD, and also generating carbon dioxide. So most of the carbon dioxide that is, that is a result of the metabolism is generated inside of the Krebs cycle, which is part of the mitochondria. So once you reach the electron transport chain, uh, you can have a number of different reasons. There are four, four levels, electron transport, four complexes, electron transport chain one, two, three, and four. And each one of these could malfunction for a different reason. Like, for example, succinic dehydrogenase, the cofactor for that is NAD. So you don't have any, if the NAD to the NADH ratio is low, in other words, if you have a buildup of NADH, so synthetic hydrogenase will not work well. Then the second electron transport chain complex two is dependent on coenzyme Q10. But it's also this quinone, actually, it's a redox agent, right? So it can be an oxidized and a reduced state. Ubiquinone is the, is the oxidized state of the coenzyme Q10. And basically, after it accepts a, an electron from NADH, it gets reduced to something called ubiquinol. So in order for it to get recycled back into the oxidized state to keep that, that step running, right, uh, this ubiquinol also has to be oxidized back into ubiquinol, which also depends on oxygen, right? It also depends on the NAD to the NADH ratio. And then step three and step four, step three is the cytochrome C reductase, and step four is cytochrome C oxidase. That last step is really crucial. Uh, because the, that enzyme cytochrome C, oxidase, cytochrome C oxidase can get damaged very easily, can get blocked from activity by a number of different external and internal factors. For example, nitric oxide can form a really strong complex with cytochrome C oxidase, and in that state, the enzyme is, is, is not functional. So you can get stuck at that step, and it's that last step that basically binds that hydrogen ion with oxygen to form water. So you can be have all of these steps working, until you reach step four, and basically at that step, if it's tightly bound to, to nitric oxide, um, your, your oxidative phosphorylation is not working properly. Um, and so that's why buildup build of nitric oxide is really pernicious because it has a, such a systemic effect on oxidative phosphorylation, even aside from its role of being a pro-inflammatory agent. And Ray quotes a paper by a guy named, a guy named Bricks, uh, or... It might have been another paper, but that that's the would you agree that the shift towards the NADH over the NAD is like a state of pseudo hypoxia? And so if somebody it's gonna be obviously more extreme during starvation. If somebody goes on a ketogenic or low carb carnivore diet or whatever, the my friend Andrew Kim, he used to say it was like living on the edge of subsistence. And of course you're lowering the metabolic rate to meet your uh uh energy producing ability. But I, I, that pseudo hypoxia seems like a good encapsulation. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if nitric oxide is high, you cannot properly use oxygen. So you can be perfectly well oxidized in terms of, um, like, for example, uh, this pulsimeter and oxygen saturation 
a device that uh, many hospitals use, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't, it can tell you, I guess, I guess the only time it's useful if the number is like really low mm-hmm. or it stays abnormally high, even when the person is obviously not healthy, right? So like as Ray said in one of his articles, a corpse, you, if you give this to a recently to a person who recently died, if you measure them, their oxygen saturation rate, it's going to measure at 100, right? Because there's no, there's no metabolic activity in their tissues to use that oxygen that is already in the blood. So if you measure their oxygen saturation rate, of course it's going to be 100 because that oxygen that is still in their blood is not getting used. Over time, it will decline because of the buildup of anaerobic bacteria in the body when the decomposition starts. But initially, uh, like a recently dead person will have 100% oxygen saturation rate. So that doesn't tell you much. It tells you just how much oxygen is present in the blood, right? So you can detect things such as lack of hemoglobin, right? Uh, There's a condition called methemoglobinemia, which is treatable, incidentally, with methylene blue and a number of different quinones. Um, so that condition can get probably um, very easily detected, or at least a suspicion of this condition can get can arise if your oxygen saturation rate drops, let's say, below 9. Um, but at the same time, uh, oxygen saturation rate between 90 and 95 is usually where you expect your met- – uh, this is a reading that you expect to get if your metabolism is actually fairly good because um, as, if you're producing enough carbon dioxide due to high metabolism – Basically, the oxygen in your blood should have very high rate of dissociation from the hemoglobin and entering the tissues. So if the metabolism is sufficiently high, like the rate of breathing is, is basically slightly behind the rate of utilization of this oxygen from the blood and going into the tissues. So you could have an oxygen saturation rate on this device that measures it that's below 95. And if you talk to any doctor will tell you, oh, no, 95. If you're below 95, you're having problems. Something's wrong with your lungs or you like something wrong with your blood. You're not, you just can't properly carry oxygen, right? But it's, it turns out that's not true. Actually, the healthiest people have a reading between 90 and 95. Actually, between 92 and 95. It starts dropping below 92. I, I, would, I, would, I mean, it's probably an indication of something not very good happening because that, it's just not that many people whose metabolism is that good. I think Ray mentioned once that uh, when he took a very high dosage of thyroid um, and he, he did a reading and it was like at 87 or something or 88. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, one of his friends was a doctor and freaked out, told him to go to a hospital. And then within a few minutes, uh, no, I'm sure, I think in a few hours, because I think Ray took T3, in a few hours, it, it climbed back to like 92 or 93. And he explained it to the doctor and the doctor was shocked because he actually had never learned of the Bohr effect in medical school, or at least he didn't remember it. He didn't think it was something important. Would you let me turn on the light? Because uh, completely invisible now. Yeah, go for it. I'll, yeah. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us on a Saturday. Apologies for uh, moving this episode. We just had a schedule conflict, and so we don't normally do that, but uh, just happy to make it happen. Uh, please like this episode if you guys haven't already. That really uh, helps out and supports us. We're doing uh, a, the giveaway. You know, we've been doing that ever since we started this, and the winner this month was Lisa Biscup. And so thanks for entering, Lisa. And you need to email me, danny at dannyroddy.com, and then uh, give me your address, and then I'll forward that to Georgie, and he'll send you out a bottle of Tocovit vitamin E. So thanks for that. And it, to enter the giveaway, all you need to do is like the episode, leave a comment, and subscribe to the channel. And thanks so much for that. So we have about, I have 33% battery. Uh, I'm not positive my computer's going to turn off when it gets d- down super low. It might keep it up, but 
we really don't want to take that yeah, I'll, I'll, chance. I'll, I'll hurry up. So, so bottom line is, so when you're in a reduced state, right? Uh, I mean, it's really affecting several core components of your metabolism, um, above all pyruvate dehydrogenase, which happens to be the rate limiting step of glucose metabolism, right? And then there could be other factors such as high nitric oxide, which happens to be to rise, you know, not only as a result of inflammation or infection, which is its primary purpose, but also when metabolism drops. Why? Because it's carbon dioxide that is the endogenous, healthy vasodilated, vasodilatory factor. If your metabolism is not working well, you don't produce enough carbon dioxide. So the body activates the inducible nitric oxide synthase enzyme and starts synthesizing nitric oxide, right? Because that's in order for, to keep the blood vessels supple at the cost of tremendous pro-inflammatory effect and further blocking of your oxidative phosphorylation. Because like I said, if enough nitric oxide is produced, it will bind with the enzyme cytochrome C oxidase. And the only two things that I know that are capable of knocking it out of there are either methylene blue or red light. Uh, I think there, there is some suspicion that magnesium may be able to do the same because it stimulates the excretion of nitric oxide from the cell. Uh, I think zinc and magnesium, actually, both of them are known to, to have that effect. But once it's bound there, so the only two things that are known to actually be able to break that bond are methylene blue, potentially other quinones, such as vitamin K, you know, coenzyme Q10, the tetracycline antibiotics, or sunlight at its you know, major component, which is red light. Um, so, so what happens then, basically, if you have a buildup of lactic acid, how do you handle it? Well, thyroid, taking supplemental thyroid increases the rate of the metabolic rate um, and also increases the production of carbon dioxide and shifts the, the balance back towards oxidation. Taking supplementary quinones can play the role of an emergency terminal electron acceptor, which is another way of saying this buildup of electrons, this buildup of NADH can be handled by giving that electron to something else that is capable of accepting it, which in chemistry and biochemistry is known as, as an oxidizing agent. And there are a number of different ones, but the most well-known ones, the most famous ones are quinones, specifically methylene blue, because the electron affinity of methylene blue is fairly high. It's one of the highest um, of any other substance uh, currently in clinical use. It's about 5.4 electron volts. And the, for as a comparison, the electron affinity of, uh, of a quinone like vitamin K or a benzoquinone like 1,4-benzoquinone, 1,2-benzoquinone that Dr. William Koch used in the early 20th century for cancer treatment, the electron affinity for those quinones is about 2.4 to 2.8. So, 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 and because it's a logarithmic scale, methylene blue is several fold more potent. Um, it accepts electrons more readily than these other quinones. Um, and uh, a, a number of different studies have demonstrated that, that supplementing with methylene blue alleviates a number of these metabolic um, metabolic blockades at specific steps, such as taking methylene blue reactivates or you know speeds up the oxidation of lactate and prevents the blockade of pyruvate dehydrogenase by this excessive you know shift towards reduction. In addition, if there is any block in the in enzymes in the electron transport chain complexes one through four, um, methylene blue is capable of, of basically um, of circumventing the dysfunction of electron transport chain complexes one through, th one through three, right? And then for, for uh, electron transport chain number four complex, which is cytochrome C oxidase, methylene blue is potentially capable of getting nitric oxide um, off of that bond with the enzyme. 
so that so that so essentially it restores the function of electron transport chain uh, complex four as well. Um, and there is the number of different studies with other individual quinones for for specific uh, blockades and specific metabolic steps. But I think so far the most convincing evidence is from methylene blue, um, and it's 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 enjoyed clinical use for a number of different conditions, including lactic acidosis, and even some conditions with which the doctors thought that they're caused by like a genetically genetic inborn error um, in one of the enzymes, one of the genes that codes for one of these enzymes like pyruvate dehydrogenase or succinic dehydrogenase um, or or the uh, the ubiquinone reductase uh, enzyme in the electron transport chain complex number two. Um, so yeah, so it, it just demonstrates that if you if you eat food, you will have a buildup of electrons. If these electrons have nowhere to go. Um, the very first thing that will probably happen is lactic acid will increase, which not only has bad direct metabolic effects because lactic acid is a potent inducer of tumors, as, as per that study that uh, I mentioned before the show and I've already posted on my blog, uh, but also because lactic acid, while it's high, you're in a state of virtual hypoxia and all hell breaks loose when you're not using oxygen properly. I mean, um, just just a very... Presence of hypoxia is is sufficient to start the cancer metabolism. And if the cells, if sufficient number of cells in an organ establish a quorum, in other words, they're in a compromised state and say, "Oh, no oxygen," we revert back to glycolysis. That's that's how you get the well-defined localized tumors. Um, and uh, you know, further uh, furthermore, if you already have an established tumor, uh, increased lactic acid is actually a sign it enables the tumor to grow because it's a potent stimulator of vascular endothelial growth factor, in which allows more blood vessels to form and feed the tumor and make and allow it to grow. And it also has been shown that lactic acid is actually the seed that keeps the, not the seed, but the factor that keeps the tumor stem cells alive and allows them to leave the primary tumor site, travel around and form metastasis in, in remote tissues of the body. So really, lactic acid is not a benign thing, no matter what the keto community says. It's treated as, an, as a medical emergency by every emergency department around the world. If you go in there and you're panting and you feel like you can, can't breathe properly, one of the first things that we do is do a blood test for lactic acid and or bicarbonate. And because these are inversely correlated, if your bicarbonate level is low, they will immediately assume that your lactic acid level is high. Um, and then being in a reduced state, Basically, it prevents, due to the Randall cycle, um, if the NAD to the NADH ratio is low, and if you cannot metabolize glucose, the only other thing you can metabolize is fat. And whether you believe in, in fat burning or not, um, it is, it is uh, hard to dispute the fact that every chronic disease that we currently know has a component of dysregulated fat metabolism. They call it dysregulated. Uh, what they really mean by this is that there is a, there seems to be an, a preference of tissues for fat, which cannot be explained by anything genetic, right? It's just with advancing age and in certain chronic conditions, cells seem to be, of the sick person, seem to prefer, quote-unquote, to burn fat instead of the glucose. And if they, these people are given glucose, it just you know elevates their blood glucose levels, but it doesn't seem to get metabolized. It just elevates the lactic acid. Well, it, it seems that it's the redox balance is that ratio of NAD to the NADH that really determines how well glucose is metabolized and whether your body prefers to use glucose and or fat. 
Um, one another another piece of evidence that has become almost indisputable at this point is that with advancing age, it has been shown that that cells of old people have about the same capacity to metabolize fat as a person in their twenties, but the capacity to metabolize glucose tremendously decreases. And so far, no explanation in terms of damage to the cell's apparatus has been found to explain that. So the only thing that remains is an indirect cause, such as the redox balance. So shift the redox balance towards oxidation, and chances are that many of these intractable, incurable diseases that the doctors tell us that only genetic editing and turning us into mutants will be capable of solving, many of these seem to go away rather miraculously. So to piggyback on what you had said earlier about like the electrons have nowhere to go, this is a quote from The Living State by Albert St. Georgie. And he says, this leads us to believe uh, the first rule of electrobiology. The living state is a, the electronically desaturated state of molecules. And the degree of development and differentiation is a function of the degree of electronic desaturation. And so I think yes. that desaturation means that the there are few free electrons within the cell. Exactly. Is that correct? Okay. And yes, then, exactly. So, it's, yeah. So, the, uh, I forgot to mention that another emergency mechanism the body has to deal with, and I posted, I think I sent you that link, is that uh, synthesizing fat. So, actually, there was a study published that showed that actually, uh, like, basically, the, the accumulation of fat, aside from other reasons such as high cortisol, I mean, they're all correlated, but there's but the primary driver behind this process is that these extra electrons have to go somewhere. And once they enter the Krebs cycle, if, if something else is malfunctioning, such as the electron transport chain, so the Krebs cycle can also have a buildup of electrons, right? So if, if there is a buildup of electrons in the Krebs cycle, the only other thing that can get them out of there is fatty acid synthase. That enzyme gets activated when there is a buildup of citric acid, which is one of the intermediaries inside the Krebs cycle. So if there's extra electrons, they cannot go through the electron transport chain and meet with oxygen, then the only other thing they can do inside the Krebs cycle is get converted to fat by the enzyme fatty acid synthase, which happens to be, non-coincidentally, upregulated tremendously in every single cancer type known to medicine so far, to the point that even though your doctor is not going to tell you this, but you can Google and verify this yourselves, there are multiple clinical trials right now with fatty acid synthase inhibitors is it is treatments is hopefully cures for some of the worst cancers that that we know like pancreatic cancer melanoma uh, neuroglioblastoma uh, uh, a number of these cancers that have no known treatments well maybe melanoma is kind of changing lately because they're they're starting to be immune therapy but uh, <laughs> cancers that were considered that essentially untouchable something as simple as inhibiting the ability of the of the body to ox to, to synthesize fat turns out to be tremendously therapeutic. I, I, I honestly, we could keep going because you're on a roll and I love it. Uh, I think we do have to get to Super Chats because I'm, right. so I'm at 25%. And if we get if we get through them, let's go back to this topic and, and finish it out. Um, All right. Okay. Where the hell are Super Chats? Okay, here we go. Okay, I can barely see my monitor, but let's try to read these. Uh, Sandy says, uh, Sandy is a, great human by the way but sandy says helping a loved one on 30 milligrams methadone two weeks on gaba um gotta turn up my brain is here uh phenylalanine theanine t4 t3 cipro calcium magnesium glycinate metergoline lizuride 
5 ADHP. Is this just da- uh, damage central because of methadone? And 16 milligrams of methylene blue helps bipolar, but still some mania. So she's helping a loved one using 30 milligrams of methadone, methadone, and then she has them on a suite of like supplements. And is that enough to combat methadone in your point of view? So hold on, the methadone is given to help them, or this person is quote unquote addicted to methadone I think and is trying to wean them off of it. I think I think the se- the latter. So Sandy latter. is helping the loved one on thirty milligrams of methadone. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, there have been a number of studies recently with humans showing that um, you know all of these quote unquote addiction problems stem from elevated cortisol. Um, and uh, there, there have been some many many animal trials, but I think two human trials right now going on. One with pregnenolone, and the other one with the uh, cortisol blocker RU486, also known as the abortion pill. Many people don't know, but RU486 was was actually designed and developed as a cortisol blocker, and they only subsequently found that it also blocks the progesterone receptor as well. So this is by design a cortisol a cortisol antagonist. Um, and the the few the, like the few the, the little data that we have from human trials shows that blocking the cortisol receptor or reducing the synthesis of cortisol uh, removes the the urge to, to abuse um, opioids and or alcohol. Um, so all of these the, the reason people abuse these drugs or alcohol is simply to because they lower like when you take these drugs they lower actually at least for a little bit they lower cortisol and they give you a sense of calm. But then because they also downregulate the cortisol receptor, when you stop in the withdrawal period, you actually end up producing even more cortisol, right? This drives even further increasing the dosage or doing it more often. It's a vicious circle. But if you, if you can control cortisol, um, then usually the urge to use opioids uh, almost disappears. And then you have to go through the withdrawal period. Um, and most of the withdrawal has been shown to be due to, uh, to elevated serotonin. But there is a, another drug which has had a tremendous success in human trials of winning people off of opioids, and that drug is called clonidine. It's an anti-adrenaline drug. Uh, Ray mentioned it in one of his articles. He called it the anti-stress drug clonidine. But it's got a number of different other properties. It also lowers cortisol synthesis. Um, it lowers adrenaline levels. Um, and there is some indication that it also lowers prolactin and serotonin. Um, and at this point, to my knowledge, is used in many addiction clinics, even in the United States, to help with the withdrawal period. And um, something like 100 micrograms daily is typically enough to keep a person, I mean, to get basically carry them through the withdrawal period. And after that, the maintenance for me would be keeping cortisol at bay. I mean, thyroid should be addressed, right? Um, maybe cyproheptadine um, and maybe a little bit of pregnenolone or progesterone. It doesn't have to be all of these like, like a number of different um, like uh, chemicals. I mean, usually addressing cortisol and serotonin and, and adrenaline is sufficient. So that's that's what I will do. No more than two, three things. Otherwise, they start interacting and it's hard to know exactly what's benefit, what's producing benefit and what's and what's not producing benefit. Um, so yeah, pregnenolone slash progesterone for cortisol, cyproheptadine for uh, serotonin and cortisol, right? And then clonidine would be is what I would reach for if the person starts either getting into withdrawal symptoms or start, starts to feel the urge to drink again. Naltrexone is a great one for reducing the urge um, of, of, um, of abusing the drug of choice. And also um, 
releasing the, I mean, reducing the, the chance of relapse. And I think natriosine is actually at this point used clinically at this point, I think it's approved for managing alcohol addiction. Um, and the alcohol addiction shares many features with opioid addiction, even though alcohol itself is not an opioid. Um, most people who, who are opioid addicts, they either transition into alcohol once their opioids are not available or they're coming from alcohol addiction and switch to something stronger, namely the opioids. So if naltrexone can handle opioid addiction as maintenance therapy, I think it should be able to help the opioid one as well. It's just a matter of getting to the withdrawal period, which is pretty nasty. And I think cloning is a great option for that. And that was, Sandy, that was $20. So thank you so much, Sandy. Sincerely appreciate that. Uh, Pure Therapy for $4.99. Thank you so much, Pure Therapy. And they just have like a GIF and it says, how's it going? I'm bad. <laughs> thank you for that, Pure Therapy. Sincerely appreciate it. LEZ for $5. He says, uh, mom has, uh, I don't know how to say this, du- dupey trend. Dupitrin, Dupitrin uh, contracture of her pinky. What can be done? Uh, I'll try topical progesty. Anything else? Yeah. Thank you. Do you know what he's talking about? So, yeah. So topical progesty, um, I've also found like a, a number of people said that uh, rubbing like an aspirin solution or a caffeine solution uh, helps as well. Uh, DHEA tends to also help um, in, in such situations. So if you can mix, like if you, you can put some DHEA in the progesty, and dissolve it according to your recipe, right? Um, I think like a mixture of D- of progesterone and DHA in about three to one ratio would probably work work pretty well. And because progesterone is, is anesthetic, um, it also has the uh, like the, the effect of like relieving the pain, which in many cases really is, is what is what makes this this uh, condition like uh, you know um, unbearable for its suffer. It's not that dangerous by itself, but because it hurts so badly. Um, you know that's that's what drives many people to like to other therapies, which are definitely not helpful. Some some people even get prescribed opioids, um, and you don't want to go down that route because in the long run, actually, opioids were shown to increase the susceptibility to chronic pain due to their ability to activate the endotoxin receptor TLR4. So you're buying yourself minor pain relief, but setting yourself up for feeling a lot more pain later on, um, just because the opioids are such powerful endotoxin agonists. Uh, so yeah, caffeine, aspirin solution, uh, both these should work. Um, one to 2% solutions of either one of these should be should be sufficient to have an effect. Um, let's see, anything else? Pregnenolone, actually pregnenolone solution may also work because it's been shown that when it's applied to the skin, like a, like a decent amount of the, of the pregnenolone gets converted to cortisol, but the cortisol stays in the skin. And for many... You know, people with joint issues, one of the first prescriptions they'll get is steroids, right? By, by steroids, I mean glucocorticoids. They'll either get like a prescription for cortisone injection or, or medrol pills. It's still cortisone or dexamethasone, which is a much more powerful synthetic glucocorticoid. Um, none of these is really, really a good option, but topical pregnenolone has been shown to uh, synthesize enough cortisol locally to make a huge difference for problematic joints. Sweet. Thank you so much, LEZ. Uh, great individual as well for $5. Thank you so much, Ellie. Uh, Drew F. Hey, Drew. $5. He says, Georgie, do you think a man can get away with using a 3 to 1 ratio of progesterone to DHA even if they have hypogonadism? Can I quickly comment on this? My, sure. for, for what it's worth, just to totally anecdote, 
I have a totally different experience using a three to one uh, progesterone to DHEA if I'm not taking thyroid versus when I am taking thyroid. So I think it, uh, I think I wouldn't want to poison the water or anything because I, I don't, I don't, I'm not crazy. I don't think everybody's experience is my own, but, um, and then maybe vitamin D also affects that as well. And so, uh, but I'm curious to think of, uh, uh, curious to hear your thoughts, Georgie. So in my experience, the three to one ratio is actually really anti-catabolic. And I want to use another word it starts with AN, mm-hmm. but FDA prevents me from using it uh, basically when it comes to steroids. Um, so um, with a person and a person, if the person has hypogonadism, like of course the symptoms, the one, the ones that people worry the most about is accumulation of fat, loss of muscle, right? I mean, the sagging skin, all of these things. In my experience, the three to one ratio is even better than the one-to-one ratio in terms of reversing or at least preventing like these from deteriorating. Um, it's the libido issue that I don't think the three-to-one ratio would help much with, um, but adding just a little bit of pregnenolone to that ratio for some reason uh, tends to happen tremendously with libido. Um, so we already sell the three-to-one ratio. As, as uh, many people know, the product Cortinone now by default comes in a three-to-one ratio. And uh, I've heard from a number of different males uh, many of them um, over the age of 70, and they're saying that for many of them, actually, just the three-to-one ratio by itself was enough to restore libido, but in younger people, um, it seems to not help. It didn't hurt it, but it didn't seem to help. But if they added 5 to 10 milligrams pregnenolone with that intake of the of the, of the cortinone or the three-to-one ratio of progesterone, the DHEA, the libido seemed to immediately come back up. I don't, I don't know why pregnenolone has that effect. But um, I've heard this from other people as well. Uh, you know, the pregnenolone and DHA combination seem to work really well for libido and maintaining muscle tone, but it wasn't as strongly anti-catabolic as the progesterone and DHA combination, which are more directly blocking cortisol than pregnenolone is. But pregnenolone seems to have a really powerful libido effect. And in my experience, combining the three of them, three to one ratio progesterone to DHA and adding a little bit of pregnenolone Five to 10 milligrams per dosage is enough to actually restore libido as well. So I think for most people with hypogonadism, this remedy would would remove the need to actually go on a testosterone replacement therapy, unless you're in a situation where um, where really the uh, you're so actually even for severely catabolic people, this seems to be at least as effective as TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, as testosterone without running the risk of as much of a risk of raising or estrogen. Um, I, I actually can't think of a situation where testosterone would be preferable to this combination unless you're really a competitive bodybuilder and you want to build up huge Hulk-like muscles. Yes, the three-to-one ratio progesterone gym will not get you there. I mean, I, I'm sorry to say, but it is it is about as anti-catabolic as you can get. And in my experience, it beats testosterone in terms of keeping you in an anti-catabolic healthy state. It will not get you into a competition and win Mr. Olympia. But as, as far as an over-the-counter product, in my experience, it can replace testosterone for hypogonadism. The combination of progesterone, DHA, and pregnenolone, that is. Sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, great stuff. Okay. Thank you so much, Drew. That was for $5. Thank you, Drew. Sincerely appreciate it. Um, uh Drew has another question. Drew, I would love to talk about that <laughs> and and add on, but we are 
crunch time and my computer is going to turn off. So I just want to get through these as much as possible. I apologize. I'd like to expand on all of these things, but unfortunately just cannot. Um, but yeah. Okay. Somo for $5. Thank you so much. Somo. They say, Georgie, have you read Stephanie Seneff's theory that, uh, nitric oxide synthase enzymes like ENOS can also produce, um, what is this? S O four, two sulfate, not, just nit- uh, NO nitric oxide thoughts. I I mean I've seen it uh, uh, fleetingly. I mean I've, I've seen the references to it, but I haven't read it. I mean, what would be the context of like? So in other words, the INOS would be a, a, like a helpful enzyme. Um, I mean, sure it could, right? But its primary purpose still is the production of nitric oxide. Um, so that's my experience with it, and it's pretty well established even in mainstream medicine that once you're Basically, once your carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide levels start to drop, I mean, INOS will get activated. And or if you're under a bacterial infection, um, nitric oxide, again, is starting to be produced at higher levels to, uh, to, to battle the pathogens. Sweet. I'm sorry, I don't know more about it. It's, I mean, it's okay. A little bit of context, context would have been helpful as into like, like do I know well, that well, the well, sulfide production will be beneficial or like, uh, do I think it's even possible? Or like, what, what is well, the actual question? They're limited on on space of how, how long the question can be. But right. yeah, Somo, ask us again when my computer is not going to die. We, we could die. Or send me an email. Exactly. Send me an email and clarify. Exactly. Thank you, Somo, for that $5. Thank you so much. Jeff for $10. Thank you so much, Jeff. He says, Georgie, if you had an, uh, quote, autoimmune disease, end quote, illness, uh, though it could be caused by a single autoantibody um, were the first, what were the, were the first line treatment was IV immunoglobulin G IV. Would you also try gut sterilization? Uh, I would, uh, but my, my go-to, um, so this is a, it's, it's a, it's a good option for improving systemic health. Um, but in my experience, um, one of the, uh, primary direct causes of this, of, of the actual, tissue deterioration, which triggers the production of the antibodies, um, is actually estrogen. So I, one of the first things I will do is try the, the, the ray protocol with uh, a quarter to a half teaspoon of the product progesty, right, which I think amounts to about 150 to maybe 300 milligrams of progesterone in a single dosage. And then he said you can go back to a maintenance dose after that, right? Uh, just to get like this initial potent anti-estrogen effect to get the estrogen out of the cell. Um, and then if possible, uh, I would actually combine this, depending on how severe the issue is, I would combine this with like an aromatase inhibitor or keep the high progesterone dosage for a little bit longer because progesterone is both an estrogen receptor antagonist and an aromatase inhibitor. It's just not very powerful as the latter. There are more, there are more potent options out there. Um, I have a... I don't want to say a client, but I, there's a person I keep corresponding with. And their rheumatoid arthritis was so bad that basically the doctor said, look, um, we don't have to replace your joints, which means like, you know, pretty serious surgery. Or we have to keep you on, on like on, on steroid injections every two days, every other day, basically. And you have to come in on the weekends because it's that bad. So that person basically, they didn't try the antibiotics, but they're currently in a perfectly healthy condition in the sense of that they're back to work, they don't have swelling, their RA is in remission, 
and their regimen currently is 100 milligrams of progesterone. You know, I don't know if they use progesterone. They may be making their own. This person, it's a, it's a female. Um, so basically, the so 100 milligrams progesterone into cofferols and oil combined with 10 milligrams of the aromatase inhibitor exemestate. Um, and that seems to be keeping their really brutal IRA that nothing else was able to control uh, to keep it in remission. And the doctor thinks because the progesterone is converting to cortisol, but their cortisol levels are actually, they're low. So it's not, it's really it cannot be explained by that. Um, so antihistamine drugs would, uh, I would consider as well because they actually block, they won't lower estrogen, but they will block most of its effects. In fact, estrogen uh, produces most of its negative effects in tissues through two mechanisms, the cholinergic pathway and in the histamine, and also the histamine pathway. You block both, you're largely negating the effects of estrogen, even though ideally you don't want it inside of the cell as well because it is a reducing factor. It's an antioxidant by itself. It's like it will contribute to the, to, to the drop in that redox ratio that we just discussed, right? Um, so uh, a great chemical, a great drug that addresses both pathways is over-the-counter is Benadryl, also known as diphenhydramine. So I know people with autoimmune conditions who keep theirs in remission just by taking about 25 to 50 milligrams diphenhydramine daily. And another one, which is even better, but it's not over-the-counter, is cyproheptadin. It's also anti-serotonin, more powerful. Benadryl also has anti-serotonin effects, but it's not as powerful as cyproheptadin. So cyproheptadin is a powerful histamine blocker, powerful anticholinergic, and a powerful serotonin antagonist. So that's what I would consider as well. Um, and thyroid function needs to be addressed because... Uh, you know, the, even though estrogen is, is the direct cause of the tissue disintegration, which, which is producing the antibodies, it's ultimately the thyroid function which maintains the integrity of the cell. So um, if these things work, the ones that I'm proposing, keep in mind that this is maintenance therapy mostly, right? I mean, some of these are pro-metabolic. The progesterone has a powerful pro-metabolic effect. Maybe thyroid function could recover just by keeping estrogen and inflammation at bay. Uh, but I think thyroid function needs to be assessed and potentially some thyroid may, may need to be supplemented. And, and Jeff, I'm almost certain I, ha I have a uh, quote from Ray, a person asking about some autoimmunity thing and him saying that he thought most autoimmunity was from uh, dysbiosis in the intestine and high nitric oxide. And so I'm sure you've seen that quote, but in addition to all the things you, you had mentioned, all those things lower nitric oxide. Yeah. Um, and niacinamide is a great one because uh, I posted a, a study on the forum about maybe even six years ago, which showed that raising the NAD to the NADH ratio may be a viable treatment for every single autoimmune condition out there. And keep in mind, niacinamide directly is a direct inhibitor of, 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 the, uh, of the synthesis of nitric oxide. It's a great way to lower nitric oxide levels in the body. Sweet. Thank you so much, Jeff, for $10. Sincerely appreciate it. Uh, Roots K9 for $4.99. Thank you so much, Roots. They say, what form of vitamin D is best to supplement? Your your preference, Georgie? Um, I personally like the D3 uh, variety. Doctors seem to like the D2 variety. Um, but for some reason, uh, most of the clinically prescribed vitamin D2 seems to have some pretty bad excipients. Um, I have not been able to see, because I there's a database publicly accessible, where you can look at all of the vitamin D products that are being that are approved by the FDA and allowed to be prescribed by doctors, because that's what a doctor is going to go with first, right? 
they like they like these products because they they get a cut of the profit and also they like to to abide by the FDA guidelines. Every single one of these had at least one bad excipient. Uh, the more benign ones had silica, which clearly you don't want, but some of the like most of the other ones had either talc and or titanium dioxide. And both of these at this point are known to be carcinogenic. There's even we talked about the class action lawsuits against the companies in regards to talc and, uh, and titanium dioxide, and you don't want to be ingesting these. There was a study I posted maybe about two months ago which showed that a tiny dose of, of talc is sufficient to cause diabetes in, in laboratory animals. It amounted to about 100 milligrams of talc per day, and I guarantee you even a single pill has more than that, like as an excipient. Um, so um, I like the D3 because you can get it in a fairly pure form. Um, at this point, even, I mean, there's some some mainstream commercial products that sell D3 as a gel cap. Um, and, you know, they seem, they, some of them even offer certificate of analysis and they seem to be a pretty decent uh, product. I mean, in order, but in order for you to raise your levels and when they measure your levels, they actually measure D2, right? Um, and D3 does have one step that needs to be converted into D2 and it happens in the kidneys, but it's pretty, it's pretty reliable. So if, you're, if your vitamin D levels are not rising, usually it comes down to insufficient dosage due to either the doctor telling you to take a lot less than you need to and or carrying some extra weight, in which case, in my experience, the recommended dose needs to be doubled and potentially both topical and oral route need to be used in order to uh, raise the levels on the test that the doctors are using. Um, and Last but not least, the doctors, when they prescribe vitamin D, they tend to prescribe the once-weekly dosage, which is higher, 50,000 to 75,000 IUs. And that, in some people, when taken as a single dose, it may cause issues with high blood calcium, which will freak your doctor out. So uh, it's better, in my experience, to do the lower daily dosages. And for those dosages, vitamin D2, in my experience, is not available. It's only the the D3. Sweet. Yeah. The D3, I've been using the Carlson brand for a long time and I think it's, it seems to work well. Okay. Uh, John uh, uh, Estrada. Hey, John, for $2, he says, is it possible to reverse cavities? Uh, remember that study with aspirin that published like just like not even a year ago? Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they showed in the lab that it is possible. Um, now, um, usually, usually uh, tooth health is very closely correlated to overall bone health. And uh, yet another study, which I posted about three years ago, showed that competitive athletes, the more competitive, the more accomplished they were, the worse their, 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 their teeth health was. And it comes down to insufficient production of carbon dioxide and potentially increased gut permeability because that gut bacteria is capable of translocating into other, other tissues, including your gums. So where it causes the periodontal disease and from there, it can also contribute to the cavities as well. Um, so I know people who have reversed theirs, but they happen to be minor cavities. They weren't like to the point where the doctor says, you know, uh, I really need to like either pull out a nerve or, or like do like a, like a reconstruction of the, of the actual tooth. So if it's a minor cavity, um, I think putting like a few drops of vitamin K directly on top of it has a great effect, especially if it's combined with vitamin D. And because the cavities are caused by the bacteria, right? This recent study about vitamin D having the potent antibacterial effect, it may have the, the the side effect, the desired side effect of also killing the bacteria. So you could be both helping to reconstruct the tooth and also killing the bacteria, um, which is causing the cavity. 
Um, so I would try that and also make sure your calcium intake is, is good and your carbon dioxide levels are where they need to be. If you're scoring, if the blood test for carbon dioxide is uh, in the middle, like the 50%, I think it's like 20 to 32 at this point. That's what they're, that's what the normal range is. If you're 25 or below, but still in the normal range, you cannot have, in my experience, you cannot have good uh, dental health with, with carbon dioxide levels at that range. You need to be 28 and or uh, 28 or above for optimal dental health. Sweet. Thank you so much, John Estrada. And thank you for that, Georgie. Uh, another one from our buddy Drew F for $5. Thank you, Drew. He says, do either of you think a person should pursue college if they are interested in these topics? Um, I can't see my one. Opinions on the state of academia in general. I am completely removed from that. So I, I couldn't speak intelligently on the subject, but Georgie. I don't think you should pursue it. If you can get a free ride, and, the, and the, the school offers courses in biochemistry and biology, I think you can still still extract a lot of value um, from these courses because the knowledge is there. It's just polluted with a lot of other bad stuff. Mm -hmm. So you may have to perform some mental acrobatics and learn to tune out stuff that's really bad and dangerous for your knowledge. And also, I mean, you'll have to perform all the tests. Otherwise, of course, they're going to fail you in the courses. And that means writing some stuff that you will know to be wrong. Um, now, if you happen to find an open-minded professor, you may actually get a better grade by presenting a, you know, a, theory, a competing theory and challenging your professor to think for themselves. In my experience, most of them are authoritarians, so you will, they will probably not like the alternative idea. So if you take those courses, because you can get the, if, if you can get them for free, um, you may have to write some things that you know are wrong, but you know, depending on you know, how interesting and how good the course is, it may be a, pri a price worth paying. But to ask you a question, should you go to college for this? Absolutely not. I would only consider it if this is an easy option of getting access to, to some educational materials that normally otherwise you'll have to um, you know, spend hours and days or even months like gathering around on the internet and, and some of them are even behind a paywall. And being in school, being in college sometimes gets you access to these things just by virtue of being in the class. Kyle Mamunis, who has his PhD, talked to Matt Blackburn, I think, about this exact subject. And so, Drew, should definitely listen to that. Uh, uh, and by the way, you just had another interview with Matt, correct? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so yeah. you guys should check out um, – I think you can listen to his stuff on Spotify. And there's probably other ways, but the Mito Life podcast for Matt. Okay, two more, and we're at 9% battery. Okay, great. Uh, oh. The Kirk one – Kirk, I can't see my monitor. Kirk, uh, Kirk333 for $5. Thank you so much, uh, Kirk. Uh, born with oily skin, specifically on the scalp and face, what can be done to reduce or eliminate the oil uh, skin? Why would a baby be born with oily skin? So um, I think a little bit of oily skin is normal for babies, uh, but if an adult has oily skin, it's usually, in my experience, it's basically a, a sign of increased steroid production in the skin, which happens a compensating factor for like reduced thyroid slash gonadal function. Mm -hmm. um, and in my experience, the direct cause of oily skin is actually elevated estrogen. Um, I have quite a few female clients, they're not patients, but females who email me and they're saying that taking progesterone, some of them have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome or disease, whatever you want to call it. And uh, some of them take higher doses of progesterone 
and their androgen levels dropped and their estrogen levels in prolactin also dropped. And in uh, a few of them, actually, the androgens did not drop, but prolactin and estrogen did, and then happened to resolve the, the oily skin uh, situation. Uh, so I think the, the direct cause is, is the estrogen irritating the adrenals and producing these precursors, which when they go to the skin, get converted into, into basically these, into androgens, and androgens happen to increase sebum production and also the accumulation of fat in the cells on the surface of the skin. Um, I don't know of the exact reason why a baby would have oily skin. In my experience, most baby skin tends to be a little bit more oily than, than like most of the adults that I know. Um, it could be an issue with also like if the baby, if during pregnancy, the mother underwent stress. Um, I know of a few couples whose babies were born either with excessively oily skin or hair, body hair, um, on like legs and arms. And, and in all cases, invariably, the mother underwent some kind of a stressful event. Two of the mothers had surgeries during the pregnancy, um, which is a really stressful event for the baby and the mother. Um, one other mom was in a car accident. And after that, basically, like her cortisol was through the roof for like two weeks. Um, and she like, you know, she took, kept taking progesterone eventually to normalize it. And I think the last one, basically, that emailed me, she, she said basically that she underwent a really like messy divorce while she was pregnant. In all these cases, when the babies were born, all these skin and or body hair, there seemed to be maternal stress involved. Um, so um, I would make sure that the, that the baby is well fed and preferentially breastfed. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if that's not possible, then at the very least, make sure that if you do the formula, just try to do powder milk instead of all the other crappy stuff that's pre-made there and sold. Because uh, many of these formulas contain almost exclusively polyunsaturated fats. Um, and they contain the gums, like the acacia gum, the locust bean gum, the emulsifying gums, and many of them actually contain even carrageenan. And um, recent studies came out that showed if the, if the baby is exposed to these gut irritants very early on, it really like you know sets their, their GI tract for 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 uh, trouble later. Um, it, it increases the risk of inflammatory bowel disease or gut dysbiosis, the lifetime risk. So. When, when this baby grows up, they'll have trouble with digestion just because of the presence of these gums. Just getting powdered milk, you know, uh, preparing with water um, and adding maybe a little bit of like uh, vitamin D, a very tiny dosage, uh, may be able to help with the, with the oily skin. Thank you so much, Kirk, for $5. Sincerely appreciate it. Michael, for $30 for Danny's external battery. They were saying I could fix my problem by uh, using a USB-C external battery, which I will buy this week. Michael. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, guys, thank you so much for the Super Chats. Like I said last week, I am siphoning the Super Chats, and this stuff will help support this show. Oh, no, we have another another Super Chat. Okay, 6% um, battery. Uh, this is another one from Kirk. Um, uh, back to oily skin. It seems to, be, it seems to be a lot more after eating any oily or high bread meal. Can an aromatase inhibitor... Uh, be used for lowering estrogen. Anything else? Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah, uh, you, you can. Um, I mean, my personal uh, favorite one of the pharmacological ones are the steroidal ones like exemistane, uh, because all the ones that doctors currently prescribe and love, like letrozole and estrozole, bodybuilders tend to use them more often. Um, they were shown to to inhibit the synthesis of progesterone um, um, in the body and, and also potentially DHEA. 
so they so these so all the zoles seem to be uh, like um, suboptimal for the steroidal ones, especially extremistane, and, and at a lower dose too because it has such a high um, um, uh, such a long half life. Uh, five. It was shown that as little as five milligrams of extremistane daily, which happens to be only one fifth of the typically used clinical dose, is able to drop estrogen levels by more than sixty five percent. And at that dosage, it shouldn't really cause any of the other potential suppressive um, effects on the on the steroid cycle, steroid the, st- the steroidogenic pathways, um, because it's just not a high enough dosage to inhibit some of the enzymes. Exemestate is itself the body gets converted to an androgenic steroid um, known as 6-methylenboldenone. Um, and that is, as many people know, if you take an exogenous androgen, it can suppress endogenous production of steroids. But the lower dose exemestate, in my experience, is pretty good at keeping powerfully low in estrogen without wreaking havoc on your endogenous steroid balance. Okay, Casper has a question, but it, to do it service, we really have to answer it next time. So, Casper, thank you. We will answer it next stream. Kirk, thank you for that ten dollar uh, super chat, guys. Thank you so much. Let me just run through the um, all the things real fast here. Uh, I can't see anything on my screen. Not that. Not that. Not that. Okay, Georgie Dinkoff, idealabsdc.com, boutique supplements from my buddy Georgie, who comes here so graciously. Nothing exchanges between us. We're just this is uh, benef- uh, beneficial for both of us, and we both enjoy doing it. And our deal is always to stop when it's not fun anymore, and that hasn't right. even come close to happening so far. So, sincere appreciation for Georgie for joining me. Uh, you can follow Georgie. You can follow Georgie on Twitter at, at hate it. You can, I do coaching and that's how I support myself. And you can go to dannyroddy.com slash resources. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, the Danny Roddy weblog on uh, Instagram. And I try to put food things on there. And uh, I, th- is it next week or the week after I'm going to have Emma Sorakis on and we're going to, we're going to do a, sh- a show. And so look forward to that. And then Georgie will be back towards the end of the month, I think, because our schedule is a little weird this month. Yeah, um, hopefully by then I'll, I'll, I'll have a published study in a oh. journal by yours truly. And I plan, I'm plan. i planning more studies, so stay tuned. Some more studies planned for this year, including the one on cellular immortality. Um, so yes. we may be able to prove the Hayflick limit wrong. And if we do, um, I don't know, maybe our houses will get raided by the <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. We'll Amazing. Uh, thank you so much, chat. I keep an eye on that and it's really great today. So thank you everybody for uh, joining us, you know, and making these streams as fun as they are because the participation is is really fun to, to behold. Uh, so thank you guys so much. Georgie, any parting words? Just, you know, uh, <laughs> stay healthy. It, it is great. Even though the world around you seems to be falling apart, I think sometimes it's just like a precursor to uh, to better, to better things developing out of this chaos. Um, if, if nothing else, we all know that the current situation cannot be maintained any longer. Um, it's just a matter of, of you know, riding through the rough waters for, for a few more years. But I think the, the house of cards is crumbling. So I'll do my best to contribute to that. You heard it straight from the source. Thank you guys for everything. We'll see you, I'll see you soon with Emma and then Georgie will, will be back on. Thank you guys so much. Have a great, safe weekend. I'll talk to you guys soon and take care. Peace.